Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special returning guest, Turner Novak. Turner, welcome back to the program. Hey Eric, thanks for having me back. Turner, I, I, this was by popular demand, uh, largely by a number of, uh, of teenagers who found you on TikTok and are now you know, aspiring VCs and, and you're, you're blowing up. How, how does it feel? Yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm trying to keep making good content. You know, make people happy, make people laugh, yeah. uh, maybe teach people something, a thing or two. So you, you sounded like an athlete at a, a post-game interview, you know, just, just try to, you know, go our game plan. Coach told us to do this and we just did it, <laughs> executed. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so last time we were on, it was, it was a couple years ago. Consumer social was in a, was in a very different place. Uh, you know, it's 2020. We're, we're in the era of COVID. You know, we'll, we'll get to snap, you know, bite dance and Facebook individually, but how are you thinking about consumer social from a from from a, a VC perspective right now? In the sense that if you were to make any investments in the next six months in, in new consumer social companies, what characteristics might, might might they have? Yeah, I think consumer social is really interesting. There's a lot of things you can do adding a social component to existing products or just a you know quote unquote boring old social network. Um, but yeah, I think. Verticalized social networks are, are really interesting. You know, you can, it gives you a certain kind of go to market that maybe is more effective than if it's very broad. Um, I think you have to be careful because there's certain categories in verticalized social where it's maybe harder to compete against an incumbent. Uh, but it's basically like finding a, a behavior that already exists that's probably there's 10 million or 100 million or a billion people already doing this activity. And can you make it, you know, 10 times easier or make them able to be 10 times more creative than what the existing platforms let them do? Um, and that's a very like broad question and way to phrase it, but that's kind of how I think about it. Um, and then a- another piece I think is super interesting is taking social components and just bringing them to an industry or a product or a category that's never really had social before. I think the beauty of social networks is like you basically have the users grow it for you. It's, you know, if, if you do it right, it's like free CAC, free growth. Um, but then also we're starting to see elements where there's a commerce component or you basically go full stack. And instead of letting someone else buy ads and then they make like two or three times on the ad, you just remove the ad process and just sell things directly and you capture all that value. Um, and then there's also benefits where you can like consult, you can kind of aggregate all of the consumer demand and you influence what gets filled in that demand. And I think, I mean, we could see it in like literally every category. Venmo is an early example of social on top of payments. Uh, I think snack pass is a really interesting one where it's social on top of food delivery, restaurants, e-commerce, like, you know, you can kind of think about how that expands over time. So I just think we'll see some interesting stuff. You know, there's a lot of people doing things in sports, you know, there's some, some cool things out there. You kind of, you can think about how do you, it's not just anymore about, can you throw ads in a feed and that's how you monetize. You can literally make money doing anything like a subscription, you know, a subscription community where it's like a million diehard fans that pay 30 bucks a month for some product. And that gets you to a billion dollar company, right? Like that could return your fund depending on how big your fund is. So uh, there's a lot of different 
interesting angles. I think it's like people kind of cracking in something that already exists, but nobody else really knows it exists yet. That makes sense. Totally. And, and, and speaking of adding a social layer on top of commerce, one of the businesses that you're really inspired by and intrigued by is uh, Pinduoduo uh, in, in China. I'm, I'm totally botching the pronunciation, but, but we'll call it PDD from now, from now on. What, what makes it so interesting uh, to you and what's applicable? What can we learn from it? Yeah, I mean, it is a very interesting story because it was founded five years ago, zero dollars, right? And now it's worth, I I haven't checked today, but it's worth like $160 billion in the public markets five years later. That's absolutely insane. Like, I don't think a company's ever grown that fast before. And so it's an interesting story because the founder, his parents worked in a factory, like super lowest of the lowest class in China, like really didn't have anything growing up and was just a smart guy. I'm skipping a lot of details, but just worked hard, did the right kind of stuff and, you know, founded a couple companies. Um, and with uh, PDD specifically, you kind of think about what year was this, like 2015 when it was founded. You kind of think about what does e-commerce look like in China and probably in the U.S. too. It's like Amazon, Alibaba. Alibaba was public, valued at, I don't know, I forget what it was at, at that time, like $200 billion, doing close to $200 billion in GMV. You're like, how can you compete with Alibaba? You know, they're, they're massive. They have 300 million users or buyers. And just this insight of, you know, Alibaba was basically built for desktop. So the way their DNA is set up, open the browser, type for what you want. You search for what you need. There's millions of categories and options. And as a consumer, like that can be good. But when you're on your phone, it's like, you're going to get me, you're going to make me search for something and like type it in what I want. Like, no, it's like Facebook and what made the Facebook and Instagram feed so interesting and great for consumers, but also great from a business perspective is you basically open up the app and it just gives you what you want to see. So PDD did the same thing where you open it up and it just gives you deals essentially. And for PDD in the beginning, it was a lot of uh, the very, very early days was they basically bought a bunch of Facebook ads for a bin of fruit. They like bought a bin of fruits, split it up and do a couple different, like, you know, so they can deliver like a hundred packages, a thousand packages or whatever, bought some ads to like sell them. And they realized like, holy crap, we just sold all these fruits super easily. We cut a bunch of costs. We, you know, made it super cheap for consumers and they made a bunch of money, like splitting up fruit into these individual purchases. And they kind of realized that people thought it was fun to like buy and get a good deal for fruit. And it's just like this random thing. It's really low intent. You're not like, going on this app and saying like, oh, I, I need batteries or I need like something in my house fixed. I need this delivered immediately. You bought like some silly fruit that you'll eat in a week and you don't care when you get it. So you kind of had, you could deliver it uh, without urgency and you know, shipping costs could be lower because of that. And then it was all, like I said, presented in a feed. So you basically controlled what the consumers saw. So they started with fruit um, long story short, they kind of combined it with a gaming company, added a lot of gaming components to increase retention and engagement. If you look at their data now, that's kind of disclosed and, you know, like sell side analysts will put out reports, the kind of Dow Mao, basically like the stickiness and engagement of the product throughout the course of a of a month is about 10 percentage points higher than Alibaba and, and JD. So those are in the 30s, PDDs in the 40s, 40% of the DAU, of the MAUs check it every day, which is pretty insane. And so they essentially like you use machine learning, you optimize the feed and instead of opening up an e-commerce thing where you search what you want, it just shows you some deals that you might be interested in, like an umbrella, some shoes, some random fruit. And, you know, and I think their biggest 
top selling items, tissue paper, right? Uh-huh. It's like, what? And, and like kind of circling back, it's a $160 billion business. But what this did was it basically, it allowed them to pool together orders. So they could basically say, hey, manufacturer of tissue paper, we can guarantee you 100 million units. I'm making up this number, but we can guarantee you 100 million units this month. And as a factory who at the time in China, you know, it was 2016, 17, 18, the trade war was going on. They had a lot of capacity that kind of evaporated or the demand evaporated. So they had unused capacity and they could basically say, hey, like, we'll help you sell more tissue paper, vacuums, whatever it is. And instead of selling to a foreign overseas brand who then market up 10X and sell it to Europeans and Americans, just sell it at the same price, probably higher. You can make twice as much money selling it to Chinese consumers who a bunch of middlemen get removed from not having to go through distributors, going to a retail store and pick it up or ordering on Alibaba. They actually get a good deal too. And so you basically let them remove multiple layers of middlemen in the process make consumers more money and then take a cut themselves. What they did was they turned it into an auction marketplace where you could basically, you could, they could bid on that demand, the the suppliers and the manufacturers really similar to like Facebook ads. Like you've got capacity, you're a roofer. You want to buy ads on Google to go fix someone's roof. I mean, Google's trillion dollar company here in the U S and in globally, they kind of did the same thing with e-commerce and they just kind of went all in on it right away. And then they also really, they focused on low cost. So the classic bottoms up disruption, the, like the consumers they targeted in the beginning were in tier three, four, and five cities in China, which that's the equivalent of, you know, starting a company where you're going after people who live in, uh, just, just throwing these names out there, but like a city like St. Louis or like Kansas City, like no one talks about these cities in the US. You know, you talk about San Francisco, New York, but kind of these like random cities with like a million people or 500,000 people. And they just like owned those consumers and a lot of like low cl- lower class r- rural consumers who, you know, their incomes were like one tenth of the people living in the cities. And they kind of nailed that consumer and they slowly started moving up market. And now they're right on par with Alibaba. It's pretty uh, remarkable how they, they're probably going to pass them in total active number of customers in Q4 of 2020. I think in Q3, Baba was like 750 million and PDD was 730 million and they're growing twice as fast. So same base, but they're growing twice as fast. It's just, it's insane. And so I think there's a couple other sort of elements like, you know, WeChat had just launched or WeChat had just launched uh, WeChat Pay, where you could pay within the WeChat app. Um, PED grew a lot where people would basically share all these deals within WeChat. And it was very viral because you basically is like, hey, Eric, if we if I buy this by myself, I pay a dollar for this tissue. But if I get you and a couple other people to buy, we pay 30 cents each for some tissue paper. And we're all like, wow, this is great. Chinese housewives, these poor rural people, they're like, oh, this is great. Like, look at these deals. They're all sharing it. And then WeChat also launched a mini programs feature where it's basically an app within WeChat. So they kind of took that to the extreme. Instead of just doing it in WeChat, like texting and chat, you it was literally an app within within WeChat. So you actually had the PDD app. So they could really quick, there was low friction to getting new users. Eventually you funnel them into the other app. And we don't quite have that here in the US. Um, but I think there's just a lot of different elements that you can kind of borrow, whether it's, you know, cutting middlemen, getting a closer touch point with consumer, introducing advertising to different products, introducing social elements, um, growing on top of other platforms. Like there's just so many lessons that startups can learn from. 
And I think it's one of the most fascinating businesses out there right now. So that, that's why I've been talking about it and researching it a lot the last year. And it's interesting. One of the ones I'll, I'll just pick up on is, is you mentioned disrupting from below. It's interesting because sort of, you know, Tesla and Uber, you know, a lot of people copy that model, which is, you know, you go pr- premium first and then, you know, that subsidizes, uh, subsidizes the ability to work your way down. Is there a framework for thinking about when you should disrupt from above versus when you should disrupt from below? I mean, I think part of it depends on where the opening is in the market. So with Tesla and Uber, Uber was competing against taxis. I consider those the low end. It's not really a premium uh, experience. And then Tesla, you know, you're competing against the automakers who are probably targeting the low end. Yeah. Um, but then with something like like PDD, there was already these JD and then Alibaba were kind of the two. They were really targeted at you know, higher class citizens living in the big cities, they had incomes and like kind of demographic profiles a little bit more similar to, you know, like higher income in the US and developed markets. Um, So I think it's just about figuring out where's the hole in the market? How do you differentiate? And, you know, it's kind of like optimizing, get as low as CAC as possible. Like how can you basically get people for free? Cause there's no competition. Like that's, that's what I love as a VC. Like that's what you're trying to invest in. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We just invested in sort of a, uh, a, 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 a fitness company that's that's basically future fit for the for low end um, because future fit is too intense, expensive, you know, elite for uh, for you know a large percentage of Americans. At least so far, they'll work their way down, I'm sure. But uh, they're they're really going after you know uh, sort of people in in, in red states uh, in the middle of the country who you know aren't as fit and and um, don't have as high of demand and don't have as, as much to pay. Yeah, that, I think that can be really effective too, especially when the incumbent is disincentivized from reacting. Yeah. So if you have, like, let's say they have coaches, like Future Fit, I have no idea how Future Fit works, but they have coaches who focus on like certain things that, and like the whole business model is set up towards the higher end, like definitely yeah. an opportunity there. I mean, it's like same with Tesla. It's like the incumbents were gas guzzling cars that people financed to the gills like 84 months financing and 0% interest people buying these people buying new cars were like rolling over their equity or negative equity in old vehicles to get new ones. It's like, that's, that's how the automakers are making money. They're not going and they're selling also to, uh, they, they had layers of middlemen. They had the dealerships. Tesla just like cut out the middlemen. Like all the dealerships are not owned by these automakers. And there's like a layer of, of dealers who do their own stuff. And typically actually the dealers, they really don't make much money on the cars. They make money from getting you to sign up for financing and get upgrades and packages. So if Tesla can just be like, yeah, we're just going to make money by making a good car. And, you know, they, they went straight direct to consumer. I mean, <laughs> the CEO tweets on Twitter all day. Like it's the ultimate D to C play. <laughs> yeah. Let's transition to gaming a little bit. G- gaming is so interesting. One, just as a, as a pioneer of different sort of business models and products, right? You have, you know, Discord, um, sort of this, this, the Slack for gaming, and everyone thought, oh, is it is it ever now we're going to do you know Slack for X or Discord for X? But then also, you know, many years before Twitch, really, you know, uh, you know, live streaming for gaming, and so people were like, oh, are we going to see Twitch Twitch for X? We ha- we haven't really um, at, at scale. W- where are you excited about about gaming, and 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 how do you think about it? Yeah, well, I think the interesting thing was ga- with gaming is everyone is a gamer, whether they know about it or not. I mean even if you don't play any video games or mobile games, like your email is a game. Like you try to get through it, right? Like throughout the day. 
or whatever you do at work, you probably, the things someone does for their career, like they probably enjoy it. So it's kind of like taking gaming components and just putting it in other products. Um, I think like, you know, some, something in e-commerce where you get rewarded for checking in every day and you get like deals and you get a streak, um, you know, you get like, that's gaming coming into social. It's like Snapchat streaks. Yeah. There's kids who've sent messages to their friends like 2000 days in a row now, right? Like talk about getting people sticky in the product. Yeah. I mean, I think gaming and education, super interesting education is like the, I mean, you talk about this a lot. It's like very broken, outdated market. It's like we spend a good chunk of GDP on it. And it's like, it's basically set up for the 1800s, not the 2020s. (laughs) So I think like basically, and and, and I think you like, I think of a lot of kids, the way they learn things. Like I learned so much from playing civilization, like growing up, just like learning about history and stuff. Like, and then I also learned like, typing how to how to like how to read and like doing math like you play those games like that's the best way to do it so and i think it's just it's gonna happen because you just think of the way most kids grow up now like there's more technology um i think it's inevitable you have to be careful about it but i think that you can actually learn it's easier to learn i think you know my my daughter's my daughter learns a ton just from her tablet she has games where she's like she does stuff that's educational. And I'm like, how'd you learn yeah. that? She's like, I learned in my tablet. So that's I think awesome. we'll definitely see just gaming creep into, into everything. Um, I mean, yeah. even healthcare would be interesting. Like, and you've kind of seen it with some of these apps now. It's like eat an apple a day to keep the doctor away. Like literally like yeah. checking in with what you're eating to, to be healthy um, and, and, you know, doing workouts and stuff like that. So, you know, I think it's, I'm, I don't think I'm the most, uh, the first person to this thesis, but really like gaming's eating the world. Like just like software ate the world, I think gaming's yeah. eating the world too. Totally. Uh, going back to, to to PDD for a second, what's, what are startups that you could imagine uh, that you're seeing or you, you could see, imagine being built that that sort of really leveraged a, a key PDD uh, insight? Maybe it's sort of the, the shared, uh, you know, buying experience or, or shared experience. Like what a, what's an example of a company you'd like to see that you maybe you haven't yet seen yet or hasn't blown up yet? Uh, something that people ask me about probably every day is PDD for the U.S. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's tough because you don't quite have the same components. I think the hardest part is there's no production here. We moved all our production out of the U.S. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think about what do we actually make in the U.S. Wheat and co- like corn. Some furniture is assembled here. Maybe some clothing, but yeah, it just makes it harder. It might have to be something service based. But yeah, it's like, it's not quite as fun because there's, and there's not, like, there's the urgency, like, you, sure, you do like PDD team purchases for getting your roof fixed, but it's like, you can't have somebody wait a week to get their roof fixed. It has to be an urgent thing. So I don't know. I think the, the thing I think a lot about is like PDD specifically for other markets, like Latin America invested in a company. Maybe there's something in Africa, Southeast Asia. There's a, a publicly traded company called C limited, which has, you know, some similar components, you know, PDD for India. I've kind of heard some people talk about that. So the, the one interesting investment thesis I've kind of had and been, it's been kind of growing on me, but taking something that works in one market and, you know, bringing it to a different market. Like I think people think, Oh, Facebook is global, you know, crush everyone, every other business and category and product will be like that. But if there's any kind of operational component, that's pretty hard to localize. And I think a lot of these companies, like you can build a $10 billion business doing like 
I just heard of today. This is a Kazakhstan fintech company. The population's 18 million. It just IPO'd for $6.5 billion. That's pretty good. You know, so it's like it's a like a verticalized, almost like a super app for Kazakhstan. And they just have, you know, some some of your classic super app features. So, you know, I think there's probably different categories. Like I, I don't know necessarily Tinder for a certain region. I don't know if that's something that would like stick, but and we've kind of seen it. Like a lot of these e-commerce companies like uh Mercado Libre in, in Latin America, basically it's Amazon for Latin America. Um so yeah. I think we'll kind of see like anytime you see sort of an operational improvement or efficiency that goes against how an incumbent operates and it just doesn't make sense for them to copy. I think you'll be able to see that localized. And, you know, you think about Amazon, the way they operate, it's fulfillment centers kind of distributed. Could they ever do closed loop delivery where it like reduce waste and you're like pooling packages and like reusing packages. I don't think Amazon could do that. So it's like, can you do it in one market and then invest in the one doing it in Europe, Latin America, Asia, you know, I, it's an interesting thesis and like, I think we've kind of seen it happen a couple of times and I just think it'll keep happening and people keep making up and innovating, making cool things. Like it'll never end. So. Yeah. The, um, totally. I, I did Rappi, which is Instacart in, in Latin America and, and the economics actually, you know, work, work better there. No, for, nice. for, that, that is a model. It's, although Instacart's obviously doing great, but I don't have experiences anymore, but is there a pin PDD for experience like group? shared experiences on a slick mobile app that's just super easy to 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 buy that makes it cheaper <laughs> you're saying you you don't do experiences like you don't do anything fun not anymore basically <laughs> or uh, i mean i wouldn't be surprised if this thing is this groupon <laughs> does this already exist yeah. uh, in a mobile <laughs> well, way well, yeah and that's the thing with groupon it was the retention like the suppliers weren't unique and we kind of saw this in china all these like there's like hundreds probably thousands of Groupon clones. And it was like, it was pitched to photographers, hair salons, swimming pools, like every business was just like, oh, we'll give you leads. But like, it's like literally the worst quality leads. And those people don't want to find a new place to have like brand affinity for. It's just, oh, I get this thing for 70% off. Cool. I'm going to just go get another thing for 70% off somewhere else. So yeah, the retention is terrible. So it's like, how do you figure out with experiences? It's like, well, they just, they use it they go through that one brand once and then they churn and then like that brand doesn't get anything from your app or that uh, experience supplier and they churn out. So, I mean, Airbnb is kind of interesting in that sense of they're trying to lock down the sort of long tail of random all over the world, people hosting these things. Maybe you could do something with pooling demand and they probably do that. I mean, I, I think they kind of do. So I don't know. I don't have a good thesis there to be honest. Uh, going back to vertical uh, social networks, you, you mentioned some places where they're interesting, like like sports, perhaps. W- one thing you're a bit dubious on is is uh, the TikTok for X trend. We're seeing you know TikTok for sports, TikTok for gaming, TikTok for you're like it's just going to be TikTok. Is, is, say a bit more about that. Uh, well, I think you have to have a core use case. It's just different. Um, so the and like, how do you create the content or the supply on there? Um, so if it's just recording a video and making a video. You know, you kind of think of what, why would you use TikTok as a creator? It's because there's no social graph. And if it's good, anyone on the app can see it. And there's a billion users. So there's no reason to post it somewhere else if, if you're good. And so all the best creators will always be there. But if there's something else, like I, I think it might work with like HQ Trivia was really smart because nothing else did that. Right. And it's kind of, it's a game show, verticalized social network 
there wasn't really any social features. That's maybe where they kind of moved too slow on. So like sports specifically, like around the horn, ESPN. I don't know if you've seen that, you know, of course, that's specifically, great. yeah. Like verticalize the whole product is custom built around that. You know, I, I don't know. And, and part of these things is like, I don't know if I'd actually invest in them. I think there other people might, and like, they're probably yeah. good businesses, but like, you know, is VC, you don't get to invest in a lot. You have to say no a lot. So, but those are the kind of things like you could see them working just because the core DNA of the product, like it doesn't make sense to copy. It's like a unique insight, you know, there's still a chance people copy it. There's still a chance it doesn't work, but you just, you know, you have to have something that's just very unique and just totally different from a fundamental level. Yeah. Going back to your point about adding, you know, social layer on top of, on top of new data sources or, or things that haven't been made social yet. A few things that come to mind for me. I mean, one, you mentioned Venmo receipts. I've, I've been excited about for a long time. Receipts tell us a, a lot about, you know, what we care about, what we believe in, who we are as people. And yeah. if you, you know, Oh, you you like this artist or you support this you know organization? I mean, uh, is that Venmo? Like that's Venmo, right? It's receipts. Like, yeah, Venmo was 1.0. Uh, yeah, yeah. Something that's really built for it that really focuses on it. I think could be really interesting. Um, but yeah, Venmo got at some of the dynamics that are that are that are interesting. They just need to make the feed more more interesting. Uh, like yeah, they, they just like fell asleep at the wheel. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry if there's people at Venmo listening to this. But, yeah. I mean, you yeah. could have done a lot more cool stuff. <laughs> The um, uh, the other two are email and texts. Uh, you know, email. There's just a lot of data in in, in email about you know. Uh, and and there, you mentioned it's a game. Superhuman made it a single player game. I'm excited for it to be a, a multiplayer game. Um, and, and you could sort of, like with your team or friends. Like, I, 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 either or. I mean, at the very least, it could be. It's a better social graph of like who really knows who. How much do they communicate? Like if I'm trying to get in touch with Turner and you know, I connect with, I could be like, okay, this person is better in, into them. Yeah. I think there are a number of different game mechanics that you could you you could build uh, uh, on top of it, I, I, and text uh, as well. Uh, Mike, Michael Sipney tried a few years ago with talk show. I thought that was an interesting experiment, but um, yeah, there's a lot of rich you know uh, t- text conversations that I feel like you know tell you know a lot of the most meaningful conversation in our lives happens over text message. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and, and yeah. I feel like Apple's left a ton on the table with iMessage. Like, yeah, probably have the best. Uh, they probably have the best social graph of any product, right? You probably use iMessage more than you use your Facebook like social features. So it's like, man, there's a, there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to close with a bit of a, a lightning round. I'm, I'm going to say a company. I want you to briefly, you know, the TLDR, what's the bull case, the bear case, and, you know, what you would do if you were CEO. And you could, you could fuse them into, the, into each other. Do I, am uh, I going to know about these companies or am I like... You're, you're going to know about them, but you, you can pass respectfully if you want. The first one is uh, Snap. Is Snap. Just double down, triple down on trying to increase ad prices, short term, um, medium term, just keep scaling into emerging markets. They recently redesigned the Android app to make it actually work in emerging markets. Um, and then long term, I mean, I think the the long term, if you think Snap's a trillion dollar business, like they need to figure out how to own that next layer of computing, you know, AR glasses. Who knows when we get there? I'm always like it's 10, 20 years away. So that gives you a lot of time to have crazy theses because they're so far in the future. Um, and yeah, and in terms of CEO, like, I mean, I think since I last came on, the stock was like $10 or something. I don't, I, I forget when I came on, but. Uh, it's had a nice run since then. So, yeah. I mean, I think they've done a really good job executing and just basically they left a lot on the table that they cleaned up over the last 18 months. 
So, so the bull case is that they figure out the next platform and the bear case is that they don't, basically? Yeah, I mean, I think the bear case is that people actually do stop using it, which I think has been the, the bear case for a while. And people thought that was the case. But it just I, I just don't think that's happening. They disclose a lot about how you like the you the the NRR, whatever, like whatever you want to call on the consumer side is like kind of continuing to trickle up. If you look at total time spent, it hasn't really increased much. Um, but I really don't think they have to increase time spent. It's just, you know, it's a business where you monetize attention or connection or shared intimacy and just keep doing that. I mean, they, they've, you know, they've added gaming, which, you know, the way they've done their gaming, it's monetized with ads. So in between, in between sessions, you see a full screen video ad, you know, it's maybe not the smoothest gaming monetization ever, but I think it works for their model. So what do you think so defensible about like, why about snap? Why, why are people still using it? Is it just convenience or is it brand affinity? Is it, is it some moat, you know, with the graph or something? Like, what, what do you think it is? I think there's two actual businesses at Snapchat and most people don't know the second one exists. So the first one's the the snapping, messaging, texting. I think that's, it, it's pretty core to how most kids in certain developed markets like the US and maybe like France, the UK, just in like how they communicate with their friends and their close friends. But there's also this discover media business where it's essentially, it's basically Quibi. Like it's, it's what Quibi <laughs> wanted to be. Um, and I think they disclosed they have like they had like 80 million people that watch Discover content in Q3 or some stat like that. Netflix has fewer U.S. subscribers than that. So wow. they basically have more people in the U.S. watching their premium mobile Quibi than Netflix does. And totally different dynamics. Netflix probably way more time spent. It's a subscription. Yeah. But you really think about it. Total time spent on Netflix by someone in the U.S. What is it? 100 hours a month. And they pay $16 or yeah. whatever snap. It's like maybe they spend a total of an hour a month and they charge ads based on, you know, the effectiveness of converting on the ad and people making money on it down the road. And they, you know, they use it for an hour a month or something or, or two hours a month or whatever it is. So, and, and it's interesting because I think the way, when they add new content, it's just like Netflix, like you got Will Smith did a show where he was locked down in his house. Um, it was like, Will Smith's Garage or something was the name of the show. And it was like 16 million people viewed it. It's like this silly web or uh, Snapchat series, but it drives people to use the app and engage. Um, people subscribe to show, so they get pinged anytime a new one comes on. So they open up the app and they watch it. But then they might, you know, all of a sudden just see a funny filter, send a message to a friend, engage someone else and get that loop, kind of the acquisition and retention loop going. Um, so I think there's just two different parts of the business and people don't even realize it has this massive content business that like it's it's essentially what Quibi wanted to be. And that's where yeah. like most of the revenue comes from. So it's, yeah, yeah, that's kind of the way I think about it. I think a lot of people kind of don't understand that. Totally. Long live Quibi. Cool. Bite dance. Uh, yeah. Bite <laughs> dance. The, the bull bear case and, and what you do when you focus on if you're a CEO. Yeah. The bear case is probably that TikTok stays banned in India, actually gets banned in the US. I think the employees getting really distracted, which definitely has happened. People getting unfocused, losing confidence. It's the bear case for sure. Kind of played out. The bull case is that doesn't happen. I mean, I think we saw Trump like forgot about it. I don't know if you saw the headline. He like forgot he was trying to ban it or something, <laughs> which is just like, I felt like the whole thing was kind of a show. Uh, I think if you look at some of the court hearings that they've put out, like 
a lot of the things people have said are true about how they're collecting data and like where it goes. Um, but I think if you, if you really have to, like the worst case scenario, it gets ripped out, you spin it out as a separate company. It's still an extremely valuable business. TikTok is basically what Instagram wants to become. And Instagram's probably a $200 billion company. Like it's probably worth north of $200 billion, maybe more. So, you know, I think the bull case is, it, I mean, TikTok is essentially YouTube 2.0. If I were to remake YouTube in 2020, it would be TikTok. YouTube is landscape. It's built for desktop and your TV. The videos are 20 minutes long. The, the, you know, you have an ad every, every, you know, maybe two ads in a 20 minute video, three ads in a 20 minute video. They're just really random. It's like in the middle of the conversation, it's like an ad pops up. You can't skip it. It's a terrible experience. Uh, whereas TikTok, 20 minutes on TikTok the maximum clip length or video length is 60 seconds. And most of them are like 10 or 20. So every 20 or 10 seconds, you have a new slot for an ad. It will never be an ad every video, but you could literally have an ad every minute in the same sense as when you're scrolling the Facebook and the Instagram feed, when you get ads pretty consistently. So I think it's basically YouTube with a four to five times higher ad load. Um, and just the way TikTok is the content works like I think every video is essentially going to be shoppable eventually. So, you know, it's like YouTube, it's the same thing. You watch one video for 20 minutes. Maybe it's a shoppable video. You can buy one thing, but like TikTok, it's like everything shoppable. Uh, and you, you see 20 videos in a minute and you maybe buy 20 things like bad people probably do that. Um, and that's what it is already in China. Uh, so it's like, they bring that to the U S and then I think we've seen with what by dance does in China, they've rolled out new products. So they've got, really big they're really big in mobile gaming over there so instead of showing an ad for someone else they're just like hey download this mobile game and they monetize it really well and just like adds to the ecosystem Um, i think they've been trying to launch like education products i don't really know how those are going and there's just like every other category like long form video like a netflix competitor podcasting like short form you know audio clips like short form podcasts like premium stuff and like ebooks and like all that kind of stuff so i think anything you can monetize with advertising bytance will just do and they have shown that they're i think they paid like 10 billion in ads to, wow. to grow over the last couple years like that's insane so they're just like if they think oh you know we're our long form video is probably going to be better than netflix one day or like on the same scale like let's pay 10 billion dollars to get people to start using it um, so I just think, yeah, anything that you can monetize with ads, any, any form of media, whatever, like, I just think ByteDance will get into it. Um, and they've really shown their creator first, like they, that's all they care about is making creators like the first class citizen. And I think they've started to do it with brands too. And so, you know, you can kind of think about a lot of industries where the creators, the people driving it are like treated like trash, like Hollywood sort of, in some cases, publishing, like book publishing, you you get like 20%, 30% of the revenues from your book, music, like a lot of artists get, you know, very small cut. So I just just think we'll see them just do different things that just give more power to creators and just like any form of media. So it'll, it's not going to be right away, but it'll be super interesting to see what they do, what they do first, how effective it is, how they cross promote. Uh, So that's the bull case. Yeah, lo- love it. Well, that, that's a perfect place to, to wrap, Turner. This has been a great, uh, great sort of overview of, of where we are in you know, consumer social late, late 2020, and as well as exciting opportunities to look out for. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a really great episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. And if you have an opportunity to get Turner on your cap table, we highly recommend it. We love uh, co-investing w- w- with you at Gelt and, and look forward to many more. Awesome. 
if you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.